Welcome to the Banker Midweek, your weekly look at what the industry is talking about, offering information bankers like you need to know. Hello, today your Midweek hosts are Barbara Pianese, Latin America editor, and I'm joined today by our reporter, Alia Shibli. The Banker Midweek is our weekly discussion of stories live on the banker side and other news published by other media outlets. So let's start with general interest stories. The story that I'd like to discuss with you is one published by the FT and is about asset managers turning to green ashing on sustainable funds. So sustainable finance is a topic that is being discussed a lot, but we are still in the process of defining the rules that make an investment sustainable. And the author of this article finds that a number of asset managers have been dropping the word sustainable from the names of their funds in response to increasing regulatory and reputational concerns. And in particular, 44 sustainable funds removed the label from their brand name during the first half of this year. And that's according to data from the consultancy Broadbridge. So industry participants are blaming the lack of specific methodology for the calculation of sustainable investments. And of course, a lot of regulators are working on the topic. So for example, the European Securities and Markets Authority launched a consultation in November last year to introduce guidelines when using sustainable related terms and funds name. So under the proposed guidelines, a fund would only be able to use ESG related words in its name if 80% of its investments met environmental or social characteristics. So let me tell you, Alia, I was a bit surprised to read this, as it means that currently, if we buy a sustainable fund, chances are that less than 80% of its investment are sustainable. And still, it seems that the, the bar by the authorities are being set pretty low because 80% is, is still pretty low. So what is, uh, what is your take on this generally, on this uh, topic? Yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, because as you say, we might not know, and that's especially the case if advertising of these types of things is somewhat misleading, which I explored recently when writing about how regulators are responding to greenwashing concerns, where there has been a clampdown by regulators to iron out misleading ESG marketing. And clearly now, the opposite of greenwashing, green hushing, is also becoming an issue. Because as regulators continue with efforts to eliminate misleading ESG marketing, Firms across the board will be becoming wary of increased scrutiny and green hushing may also feel like a safer option and almost like a precaution if firms are concerned about falling short of stated targets. So I think stronger guidelines when using sustainability related and ESG terms will help. But in the meantime, cases of greenwashing and green hushing will likely grow. Yeah, definitely. I think we will see this happening in the market. Um, and I think the, the, the difficulty is, uh, especially because when we talk about ESG, it's not just like the environment, it's just also human rights, governance. Um, and I think we are seeing all the kind of regulators and market participants trying to uh, pro propose investments that can meet all these uh, objectives and it's not super, super easy, right? So moving on, another story from the, uh, from the FT on a different topic. Uh, is this week news about the UK uh, to delay implementing global banking rules. So the Bank of England will delay implementing the latest package of global post-crisis banking reforms for another six months. And that was according to sources. So we expect uh, the Bank of England to 
uh, to unveil a, a July 2025 uh, deadline in the coming weeks, uh, in line with the deadline announced by the US over the summer. And uh, let's uh, keep in mind that the new rules are part of a broader Basel III reforms, uh, which are the final effort to protect the banking industry against the excessive risk-taking that culminated in the financial crisis of 2008. So these rules were originally set to come into force in January 2025, after years of delays uh, from the initial target of January 2021. Uh, another thing, uh, point of interest, is that the new timeline puts the UK out of sync with the European Union, which still has a January 2025 deadline. So my first thought reading this was that the EU might want to extend implementation of rules as well, so that the, the three kind of continents follow the same deadline. And uh, yeah, I just, of course, I'm not an economist, but I'm just wondering how much these delays might be risky uh, when you know, uh, we are just kind of pushing, uh, pushing ahead the implementation of uh, these uh, crucial reforms. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think when it comes to reform and also regulation, um, it brings us nicely as well to a story that you mm -hmm. recently wrote, Barbara, about the Basel rules and the issue of banks being too big to fail. So are those rules enough to end the issue of being too big to fail? Yeah, this is, is uh, quite an interesting topic. So um, the main takeaway uh, from the article that you can read on the banker is that regulations for banks have increased, and so regulatory costs for banks have increased following the global financial crisis, but the reforms implemented did not solve the fact that the largest U.S. banks, and probably the largest banks worldwide, are still too big to fail. So meaning that uh, today a number of banks are too big that if they were to collapse, they would pose a systemic risk to the world economy and the financial system. So uh, this idea was uh, one of the main uh, points uh, from the 15th anniversary Lehman Collapse Conference. So it was a conference organized early this month by uh, Better Markets, which is a US-based nonprofit organization. Um, and during the event, a number of academics argued that the post 2008 reforms increase capital relative to risk. So banks need effectively to put aside more capital, uh, but uh, they stop it short of requiring sufficient capital to minimize bailout risk. So it means that uh, it was not enough uh, effectively. And uh, yeah, what I think is, is again interesting is that going back also to, to the previous stories that after more than a decade uh, following the financial crisis, we still, it seems according to exper experts, that we don't have rules that are fit for purpose. And our economy and our financial markets are still at risk. Uh, and this is especially an issue now where, uh, you know, the economy is not in the best shape in the world, right, uh, this year. Uh, bank, central banks are increasing interest rates, so uh, we don't really expect uh, the world economy to grow uh, massively. Now let's turn to another banker's story about uh, Swedbank's social bond mark, uh, marking a milestone in Nordic markets. Alia, you wrote this story, so tell us, uh, tell us more. Yeah, sure. So 
when it comes to ESG, most investors expect green bonds to be the most widely issued in the next few years. But I spoke with Swedbank's head of group sustainability, who says that actually the social aspect of sustainable change is just as important as the greener aspects. And Swedbank sees social inclusion as part of its DNA and will likely go on to issue additional social bonds now that the bank has broken the ice in the Nordics. So I think we'll see more coming from Swedbank um, soon and more from the Nordics in this space too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. It is pretty. It's pretty interesting, and uh, this brings us back to the the topic we were discussing before, right? Mm. How ESG is really a multifaceted topic, uh, and uh, uh, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but it seems to me that a lot of discussions are really being focused on on the green transition, um, while a lot of um, uh, there are still a lot of uh, social issues to be tackled uh, in terms of you know diversity um uh, equality in general mm, i agree so yeah I, I, I we just hope that this uh these social bonds will really uh try to uh, tackle these issues and it's quite it's quite interesting that it is happening in the nordics right they are mm. quite advanced uh on these topics but it seems that if they are pushing ahead it means that work uh, needs to be done also in this uh, uh in this kind of countries uh, now we move on to another story uh, you worked on. It was uh, pretty interesting. Uh, and uh, it is not exactly on kind of bank lending, but it, it is on payday lending um, in the U.S. Um, uh, you, you've read that a lack of regulations means that people who resort to this kind of loans may end up paying annual percentage rates that can reach more than 500%, which is know it seems quite uh, it's quite huge uh, and this is especially uh, if they resort to kind of really small uh, kind of the so-called smaller dollar loan so mm-hmm. uh, I really I'm really keen to you know to to tell us more about what you discovered in this uh, article yeah sure well payday lending and short-term loans are kind of a, a new area of research for me Um, especially when it comes to looking at these types of loans in the US, uh, where, as you say, it's also referred to as small dollar lending. So I was quite shocked to read that uh, not only about the levels of annual percentage rates, but the discrepancies across the US as a result of little federal regulation. For example, annual percentage rates on a payday loan of, say, $400 can extend from 140% in Oregon to more than 650% in Texas. Um, I found and research really calls for stronger regulation because that's the key to encouraging more responsible uh, lending products into the market. But in the meantime, payday loans persist. Yeah, it is, it is quite uh, astonishing. Uh, and it is stronger regulation that should be uh, you know, on a national level uh, so that you know, everybody is subject to the same, same rules, which is not the case at the moment. Mm. Um, and uh, I think the topic is quite interesting. Of course, it's quite a niche topic, uh, but I think it really uh, talks a lot about the, the topic of credit, credit by non-financial institutions, right? Because mm. banks um, often need to abide to a, a more stringent regulation, while in the case of uh, these other forms of uh, non-bank credit uh, is different. Um, and nowadays, we know that um, non-financial c- 
credit is, is really increasing and it's really, it's really getting huge. So um, a way to protect the, the financial uh, stability of the system is also to look at this type of credit because if uh, we are probably kind of entering a recessionary environment and people cannot afford to pay uh, such um, high debts and such high interest rates, um, that would cause really um, you know, a snowball effect on the system. So yeah, even if it's not really related to bank credit, I think uh, we, should, uh, we should call for stronger regulation. And uh, I also would like to talk about another story that we uh, will be published by the banker this week. Uh, and this one, again, we talk about uh, sustainable finance, and in particular, we are looking at how can transition finance help APA countries transform their economies to meet the Paris uh, climate targets. So tell us more, Alia. Yeah, this is a really interesting one, um, because I think we often read about or talk about green finance. Um, we also look at social aspects, but transition finance is still kind of emerging. Um, and the EU has led the development of green finance standards, but actually Asia is ahead of the curve on transition finance. And it's Japan who's in the driving seat mm. of, of the transition bond market. So it's an interesting trend because Japan doesn't immediately spring to mind when it comes to thinking about who it is that's leading the transition to net zero. But actually, the Japanese market was the largest source of transition finance volumes last year. It's closely followed by China, and that's according to the Climate Bonds Initiative. Mm. But one of the main issues is that transition finance is still without a universally accepted definition, mm -hmm. unlike green finance, which a lot of work has gone into. What, is, what does green finance constitute? What does the word green actually mean? Um, but the lack of kind of definitive guidance on transition finance means that it, it might risk it being easier to label an activity as transition and in, in line with net zero commitments than it would be to label it as green. And clearer understanding and stronger guidance about transition activities is needed if it is to be a truly effective tool in building greener economies. But still, Japan is making positive strides um, in this area and more transition finance will be on the cards for the region, I think. Yeah, it is, it is definitely interesting. I was not expecting this. But I think, again, uh, while we see all these announcements of uh, increasing, uh, increasing number of you know, climate bonds or you know, that all the terms are out there, so mm. it's quite a bit confusing, I'm not even sure. Let's say ESG-related bonds. Uh, it is still, we need to uh, see what what's the impact, right? Because in mm. some cases, um, there is no follow-up on how the, the issuers are doing in terms of implementing, how they are using the funds, the sustainable funds, uh, and if we're really seeing an impact. I think this is really the topic, the key topic that we need to focus on. Yeah, and I, I think it's it's also difficult in this area, and, and probably why guidance is still mm -hmm. still being worked on because um, transition finance, although it can and help the road to net zero, it actually almost requires or relies on financing activities mm -hmm. which tend to finance hard to abate sectors or fall within remits that at first you think, well, that can't be green, that can't be sustainable, like oil or gas. But actually, the point of transition is about well 
these countries like Japan or China still rely very, very heavily on, on these sectors. So how can they still use them but transition away from them um, in the long term? So it's, it's a complex area, but I think it's really interesting that, that Japan is leading the way here. But you think that when you talk about transitioning, is that we transition to renewables, right? That's the implicit. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. So transitioning away from um, yeah these hard to abate sectors and trying to find renewable ways of sustaining the economy, um, whilst accepting that in the short term the economy yeah, can't yeah. function without them. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, it is true. At the same time, I think a few months ago I wrote an article about you know, sustainable finance in Latin America. Mm -hmm. uh, that is the region where a lot of minerals uh, are being extracted. So a lot of investors are looking at the region as a way to, you know, we should invest more to get more lithium and, and other critical materials that are used for renewable energies. Mm -hmm. But then if you look at this, if you look at this topic from the point of view of uh, uh, Latin America and that from the point of view of the populations, there is a really... There are a lot of um, uh, discussions in how much like mining of these materials is this really sustainable. Mm. So uh, and a lot of the you know new mining new mines that are being opened, they are really facing a lot of uh, backlash from from the the populations mm. there. So yeah, I think it's. Uh, Probably renewables are the way to go, but I think is we also need to take into account the whole uh, kind of life cycle of the of renewables to just make sure that we are not uh, polluting elsewhere. Maybe mm. when we are uh, mining, uh, because mining is is very polluting. So we need to make sure also that other renewables are really the way to go. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And it, it'll be interesting to see um, what comes out of that space and also what comes out of more transitional finance elsewhere. OK, well, I think we uh, we discussed a lot about <laughs> sustainable finance yeah. um, and uh, we will write more uh, about the topic in the uh, in the coming weeks uh, on The Banker. And uh, yeah, thanks for joining me, Alia, and thanks, everybody, for listening. And don't forget to tune in next week. Thanks, Barbara. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Banker Midweek, part of the portfolio of podcasts from the editorial team at The Banker, available on thebanker.com and wherever you get your podcast fix. Search on The Banker Podcasts to listen to more.